Well, it would be hard for me to put into words uh, just how thankful Bethany and I and the kids are to be here with you this morning, honestly. Um, We are young. We're in our mid-30s. But in our lives together, Bethany and I have seen over and over again how the Lord has directed us and guided us and brought us to the places that that we need to be uh, every single step of the way. And we'll look back on various circumstances and, and see where the Lord has brought us and we'll go, oh my goodness, we probably wouldn't have chosen this path for ourselves up front, but we're so glad and so thankful. And uh, my goodness, this is, this is no exception to that. We're so thankful to be here with you this morning. Um, can see God's guidance every step of the way in moving from Virginia to Michigan and uh, I'll just say God is, our father is tender and he's good. And scripture says that he gives good gifts to his people. And we feel like we have been given a marvelous gift in being able to be a part of the body here at WBC. Um, from the moment that I arrived, I guess it was almost three weeks ago now, two weeks ago, we closed on our house at like four o'clock one afternoon, and by six o'clock, there was an army of people from WBC at the house who were um, tearing up carpet. Now, they were supposed to do that. We were asking them to do that. It wasn't, they didn't just show up and start tearing things out. They were, they were tearing walls down and painting and continued to do that to help us get the house at least livable and ready, and uh, we're, we're just so thankful. We've had so many people make us meals and give us uh, snacks and uh, a box of stuff that's from Michigan, all the, you know, like nuts and uh, beef sticks and everything that's made here in Michigan, and we devoured it. It was wonderful. So uh, it has just been really, really good, and, and you all have made us feel welcome and a part of the family, and so we're just delighted to be here uh, with you. Um, before I get to the message, there is one question that I keep getting asked, and I wanted to address it uh, right up front this morning. And that question is, what should we call you? (laughs) What should we call you? So um, I've been teasing Sue in the office this week that I would prefer to be called Father Nathan, and (laughs) she doesn't seem to be in favor of that. So... um, Let's let's avoid that one if we can. So, uh, you know, I just I introduce myself as Nathan. Um, I go by either Nathan or the nickname Nate. Uh, although my mother will probably correct you if you say that, and she's here, uh, she prefers Nathan. But either Nathan or Nate is absolutely fine with me. And um, if you if you are comfortable calling me Pastor Nathan or Pastor for the kids, if you want them to call me that, that's I go by that as well. So. Uh, it's really a, a thing of honor for me to be called pastor uh, in a lot of ways. But, man, Nathan is great. I love being called by my first name. So any of that will do. I'm not picky. Honestly, I'm not picky on that. My my big thing here is, honestly, I want to be friends. I want to develop friendships with, with you all, with the folks here. And I want to preach the word faith. Those are my two big things. So uh, that's what we're going to be all about. And uh, speaking of that, let's get to it this morning. So open your Bibles to Matthew 28. That's where we're going to be this morning. I'm excited about the passage that we're going to be in. But uh, I was a history minor in college. I've always really enjoyed the study of history. I started out as a history major, actually, and then switched to a history minor. 
And one of my favorite time periods to read about is World War II. I remember back in junior high school, I would go and get every book I could from our Christian school library on World War II. And so I just devoured those books and to this day still enjoy when I can reading about World War II. And obviously you all know that really the the turning point of the war was D-Day, June 6, 1944. And on that day, there were some, some key moments that happened even before the men landed on the beaches there in northern France that maybe you haven't heard about these particular moments. Um, but the key thing happened several hours before the men landed in the boats on the beaches and fought their way onto Normandy and other, other beaches. But it happened under the cover of night, and several uh, highly trained parachuters glided in on gliders over the beaches into into France, and they parachuted in behind German lines, and they had one mission that they were supposed to accomplish when they did that. There were two bridges that were key supply lines, and the Americans and the Allied troops knew that if they did not secure those two bridges, that the Germans would be able to bring reinforcements over the bridges in any sort of a, a front that the U.S. and the, the Allies would open up in France would be quickly shut off because the Germans would be able to supply reinforcements there. So they parachuted in, and amazingly enough, they were able to secure those two bridges within 10 minutes. They, they got them, and they were able to hold them. And some people have described those little-known 10 minutes and that mission as the most important 10 minutes of the entire war. Without holding those bridges, the the D-Day invasion probably would have failed even before it had a chance to really make headway in France. And I imagine that those soldiers, as they were gliding in, as they were parachuting in to carry out that mission, I imagine they were very aware of the importance of their task. They knew that literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives depended on their ability to accomplish that mission. The mission had a very specific goal. They knew exactly what they were going after, and it was a very precise task that was to be carried out by those men. Now, they weren't sidetracked as they went in. As they parachuted in and landed, they probably didn't take a few moments to grab a snack and a quick nap before they got to their mission. They landed on the ground, they hit the ground running, and they went after it and accomplished their mission quickly and efficiently. Their orders were clear, and they got to it as quickly as they could. Now, this morning, you can see on the screen that I want to clarify our mission as a church body and as believers for us. I want scripture to clarify our mission. We have a very clearly defined task that we are supposed to be about, and that task is supposed to consume our lives as believers. We're supposed to be about one primary thing as the church body. And many times we sort of forget that, and we kind of know it's in the back of our mind, but we get sidetracked with other things they're decent things, they're good things, but we get sidetracked and we fail to make this one task the main part of our mission as believers. And so this morning, whatever the scriptures give us as the central task is what we want to hold up and have that be the primary thing as a body of believers here at Woodhaven that we focus on 
And we want to center everything we do in ministry around that one task and let everything flow from that God-given mission that we, that we have before us. Now, we're in the book of Matthew here, and obviously we're going to be at the end of the book, the Great Commission. You know that. But if you were to read the book of Matthew up to this point, you would find Matthew explaining the good news. I mean, he's giving you the gospel, and he's giving you, here's the good news that he's giving you. God's plan to redeem mankind, to redeem his creation that he has made, God's plan to redeem mankind and creation from the curse of sin has entered its final stages. So creation has been waiting and waiting, and now Jesus Christ has arrived, and that is good news because God's plan of redemption is reaching its final stages in Jesus Christ. God's kingdom has arrived in Christ, but it's not fully here. We're not completely free from sin yet, but the kingdom has arrived in Christ. And now at the end of the book, as Christ returns to his father, He commissions his disciples and his followers to continue the advancement of his kingdom and his plan by giving them a very clear mission. So this morning, I want to consider that mission, and I want to consider our role in that mission for just a few moments together. So one of the things that I love to do when I preach is to try to summarize the whole message. So we'll try to do this consistently for you so that you kind of have some some pegs to hang the points on, and you can follow, hopefully. But what we're going to see this morning is three elements of the mission of Christ. Now, I'll get through this. I got. We're doing a little dance here with the guys in the back, so let me... Why don't you just click through it, Greg, if you can. There you go. Three elements of the mission of Christ that will strengthen our resolve to make it our mission, if that makes sense. I didn't put this on. That's my problem. Three elements of the mission of Christ that will strengthen our resolve to make it our mission. And you can see the first one there in verse 18, the basis of the mission. All right, so let's take a running start. Go back to verse 16. Let's read up through verse 18 here. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is obviously after the death and resurrection of Christ, and it's right before his ascension to the Father. The work of Christ in dying for sins and claiming victory over death in rising from the dead has been finished. So Christ has accomplished his work, and here he stands with his disciples on this mountaintop, and he's ready to send them out to their task. Now, before he sends them out, he encourages them with the basis or the foundation of their mission. Why can the disciples be confident that they're going to accomplish their task? Furthermore, why can Jesus, what what right does Jesus even have to send them out on their task? Why is he claiming this right? Look what he says in verse 18. We read it, but look back over it. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's quite a statement. All authority. Sometimes, though, I think when we read this statement, we read it 
as just a simple statement of God's sovereignty. And we think, well, of course, God's sovereign. Of course, he has all authority. He's God. And so we just sort of read it that way. And because we read it as if it's just a statement of God's sovereignty, we don't get the full impact of what Jesus is claiming here. And I want to try to help you get that full impact this morning. Jesus is speaking here, remember, not just as God. He's speaking as the God-man. He's speaking as the incarnate Son of God who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, claimed victory over death and sin. And so this is a statement of authority that is based on his work. It's not just a statement of God's sovereignty. What Christ is saying here is because I've accomplished the work that I came to do, now I have all authority over heaven and earth. You have to realize Jesus isn't speaking these words in a vacuum. He's not just coming up with these words off the top of his head. What he's doing here is claiming an expectation that has been fulfilled. And this expectation was set all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you this verse here. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Should come up on the screen there. There it is. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the mandate that was given to mankind, to human beings, to represent God on the earth and to take dominion over the earth. Obviously, you know that Adam and Eve failed in this task. They gave dominion to the serpent and to the creation rather than taking dominion themselves. And so they fell under the curse of sin. They were unable because of sin to properly represent God on the earth. And so then you find throughout the Old Testament that over and over again, Israel fails to take dominion, to uphold this task that was given to them. And there are many places in the Old Testament that anticipate that one is going to come who will fulfill this expectation and who will take dominion over the earth. One of those places is found in Daniel chapter 7. I think you're probably very familiar with this text. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." I hope you can see how Jesus's language in Matthew 28 picks up the language from Daniel chapter 7. What Christ is saying here in Matthew 28, 18, when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, I am the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. I am the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1. 
The work that I have accomplished has given me dominion over the entire earth. I am the king. I have conquered. I am the God-man who will set things right that Adam and Eve made wrong in the garden. And that's what Jesus is claiming here in Matthew chapter 28. So he's saying, I am reigning from heaven with my father. I have complete authority, sovereignty, and I have the right to call the nations to follow me and to trust in my work. That's what he's claiming in Matthew 28 and verse 18. And that brings us to our second element here of Christ's work, the mission of Christ, the goal of the mission. So we've talked about the basis here, which is Christ's work, dying, rising from the dead, his work as the God-man. But we haven't specifically talked about the mission. What is the mission that Christ gives to his followers? That's what we find in verses 19 and 20, the first part of verse 20. Let me read this to you. Verse 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You can see the word in verse 19, the word therefore, and you're good Bible students. You have been extremely well taught. And so you know that therefore connects back to the basis that you've just seen in verse 18. Because Christ has authority, because of the work that he has accomplished, therefore, here is the mission that he will give. So what's the mission? What is it? Well, I'm sure you've read this before. I'm sure you've heard preaching on this before, the Great Commission. But did you know that in verses 19 and 20, what we think of as the Great Commission, there's actually only one command given in this text. Now, if you look at it, it looks like there are more. There's like four commands given here. It looks like go is a command. It looks like make disciples is a command. It looks like baptize is a command. It also looks like teaching is a command. And so it looks like you've got four commands, but in the original language, there's actually only one command. And the other three of those words support that command. So if we're to understand what the mission of Christ is and what we are to be all about as the church, we need to know which one of those is the command. Now, certainly the other three carry the weight of of an imperative of you need to do this, but there's one command that's over all the others, and that's what we need to understand. What is the one command that Jesus gives to his disciples here? It's to make disciples. That's the command that's given. The heart of our mission is to make disciples. That's it. That's what we do. And we do that by going, baptizing, and teaching. That's how we accomplish the mission that Christ has given us. With Christ's work accomplished, we are now to focus on making disciples of all nations. It's important that you notice how broad this command is here. All nations. We're not just to make disciples of Jews. We're not just to make disciples of Gentiles. We are to make disciples as far as the authority and sovereignty of Christ extends, which is to all nations, everywhere, everyone. 
And I want to remind you that Jesus didn't come up with this all nations, the universality of this command right here. He's tapping into an expectation that has been set in the Old Testament. Remember, Genesis 1 again. God told Adam and Eve to take dominion over the entire world, over the whole earth. God has always had the expectation and the goal of seeing the entire earth filled with his glory. Think back to Abraham's call in Genesis 12, which Zach did such an excellent job of explaining how that fits into the storyline of Scripture this morning. But Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, should be up there on the screen. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And look at this. And in you, all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What do we find there? It's not just about Abraham. It's not just about his descendants. The Abrahamic covenant and the call and the promise is really about the entire world. Everyone will be blessed through the work that God does through Abraham's family, through his descendants. God commissioned Israel in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 verses 4 to 6. You can see what he says here. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You can see there, he says, all the earth is mine. So Israel was to represent Yahweh to the entire world. That's the expectation that he sets at the very beginning the nation of Israel. Psalm 67. There's so many examples of this, but I'll just read a couple of them to you. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. Here's why. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. And then one of my favorites in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14 May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon... Oops, sorry, wrong one. I was reading the Habakkuk 2.14 speaks about the glory of the Lord going to the entire world, that the glory of the, the Lord would fill the entire earth. And the bottom line here, when you get to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, when it talks about all nations, is that God wants his glory to spread throughout the the entire world. And the Old Testament expectations of that find their fulfillment in Christ's finished work and in his commission to the disciples here in Matthew chapter 28. So here's what I would say to summarize that. Making disciples is the process by which God's glory spreads to the whole world. Making disciples is the process by which God's glory spreads spreads to the whole world. Now, since making disciples is the core of our mission and our task, we need to stop and think for a moment here about specifically what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What is that talking about? It's instructive for us to understand this, both 
for our own discipleship, for our own pursuit of a relationship with Christ and our own following him. But it's also important for us to understand based on what are we what are we doing with others who come to Christ? How are we making disciples? What does that look like? So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? When you think of a disciple, you should think of a follower in a very literal sense. Try to get your mind back to the time of Christ there and think that it wasn't just Jesus who had disciples. Many teachers, many philosophers during this time had followers. They had people who would attach themselves to the teacher and they would follow them so that they could learn from the teacher. And during that time, you couldn't, you couldn't claim to be a disciple, to claim to be following a teacher and, and download their podcast once a week and listen to their teaching. Well, it didn't really work that way. In order to follow a teacher, in order to be a disciple, you had to actually be in the presence of the teacher. You had to walk with them. You can think very specifically of actually men following a teacher along a dusty road living life with that teacher, going from town to town, interacting with the teacher in daily life, and listening to his teaching. You had to follow that person around and be with them. And so for us as disciples, it's very helpful to think we follow Christ by being in his presence, hearing his teaching, and understanding what he has taught, and then obeying it. We're disciples of Christ when we listen, we understand, and then we put into practice the teaching that he gives us. You can't claim to be a follower of Plato or Confucius or whatever teacher you're following if you don't obey and you don't listen and work out what they teach you. And it's absolutely no different with us. Disciples hear the master and then they obey what the master teaches. A couple of definitions that you'll see on the screen here for a disciple. First of all here, it says, For Jesus, discipleship was not simply an academic or religious program. Discipleship was a life that began in relationship with him as master and moved into all areas of their experience. I love that. You commit to Christ as master and Lord and then... As a disciple, his influence moves into every area of your experience. The disciples were committed more to his person than to his teaching. Following Jesus means togetherness with him and service to him in his mission. Another definition of a disciple that I liked this week. A disciple of Jesus is a person who so looks at Jesus that he or she actually begins to reflect his beauty in everyday life. That's what it means to be a disciple. You're with him. You look at him. You understand his teaching. And then as you're with him, you begin to reflect his glory and his beauty in everyday life. So if that's our task, if that's the goal we've been given, the mission that we've been given, how do we fulfill that mandate? Well, he tells us here in verses 19 and 20. Remember those three supporting words? Go, baptize and teach. That's how we make disciples. Going means that's a necessary part of disciple of making disciples. Going means that you have to be with people outside the church. You have to interact with folks 
who are unbelievers in order to connect them to the gospel. Christ's disciples couldn't stay cloistered up in the upper room and think that they were going to reach the nations with the gospel. It doesn't work that way. In order to make disciples, we have to be with people who need the word of Christ. And once we share the gospel with them, go and then baptize is the next method, the next way we make disciples. You all know what baptism is. It's the public outward sign of an inward reality. It's the outward sign that there has been new life. A new heart has been created in this individual and that redemption has happened. Baptism is the initial step in discipleship, in the process of discipleship. And the disciple, it sets the disciple on a trajectory of growth and of learning and of changing that they experience throughout the rest of their lives. But baptism is the initial step in that process once there's been new life created. But I think it's awesome what he says here. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're to baptize them in the name of the triune God. And what that tells me here is that baptism signifies that you have entered a relationship with the triune God of the universe. You now experience the love that exists between the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. You are a partaker of that love and that relationship when you come to Christ through the work of Christ. So we go... We baptize, we initiate them into this relationship with the triune God of the universe. And then lastly, verse 20, we teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded them. Making disciples does not end by seeing people saved. The Great Commission is not over when someone repents of their sin, comes to Christ, and is baptized. The Great Commission is actually fulfilled when disciples are gathered together into a group of disciples and they are taught consistently the commands and the words of Christ given in his word so that they can live out the faith. That fulfills the Great Commission. What what would we call a group of people like that who gather together, are taught the word of God so that they can live out the faith? Maybe Woodhaven Bible Church would be a good name for a group of people like that. The point is here that the Great Commission is not fulfilled when someone says they've come to Christ. The Great Commission is fulfilled when a group of believers are gathered together into a local church body. And that process began here on this mountain of disciples going out to make disciples, to make converts, and gathering those people together into churches, and then... Those churches sent out more disciples to go and create other churches. And so the Great Commission, the mission that we have been given as a church, is inherently focused on creating other churches. That's what's supposed to happen here. And that has been happening. This church is a result of the words that Jesus gives us here. As disciples are made, they're gathered together, they're taught the word of God, and then they take up this mantle and they say, we are going to send someone out to make more disciples and gather them together into other churches so that more churches can be made 
and it can be multiplied over and over again until the glory of the Lord fills the entire world. That's the mission that we've been given to do. That's the process that we have in front of us. Now, when I explain it like that, that to me, that's a daunting task, right? I mean, I don't want to take that mantle up by myself and try to accomplish that all by myself. That is a daunting task for us to look at. Even with the words in verse 18, that Christ has all authority over heaven and earth, it's pretty intimidating to think about making disciples of all nations. It's a challenging mission. So how can we stay engaged and motivated in that mission together? That brings us to our third element of Christ's mission, the motivation for the mission. And this is good. I love this. Let's review the whole mission again so we can get you up to this point here. Verse 18, let me read it back to you. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, initiating them into the in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's the motivation. Here's how you stay engaged in this mission. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There are several times in the Old Testament that uh, people are given a mission. They're giving, some, giving a task to accomplish by the Lord. Men like, like Moses, men like Joshua, men like Jeremiah. And when God gives them a task that seems entirely too big for them, he also makes a promise to them. And I wanted to review some of those promises for you this morning. Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Look what God says to Moses here. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's a pretty big task. (laughs) He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What does God say to Moses? Listen, I'm going to be with you. I'll be with you. Moses's successor, Joshua. Look what God says to him at the very beginning of the book of Joshua. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God would be with him, presence with him. And then Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah is given this commission. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. This is what we're longing for in the first place. This is what we want. We want the presence of Christ with us. Remember how Matthew began his gospel? What was one of the first things he said about Jesus Christ? 
Matthew 1 and verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, dwelling with us. What did Adam and Eve lose when they were kicked out of the garden? Well, they lost a lot of things, but one of the things that they lost that I think was the most hurtful was the chance to walk with God in the cool of the day and dwell in his presence. And that opportunity to dwell in the presence of God is exactly what you and I receive because of the work of Jesus Christ. He accomplished that work, and now we are in Christ. We are brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, and we dwell in his presence. He is with us. You and I could never enter God's presence on our own because of our sin. We would be consumed. But through Christ, not only do we get his presence with us, but we get his presence with us as we go on our mission, as we engage the task that we have been given. I want you to notice something specific here concerning when he will be with us. Look at this. Your Bible probably says something like, and behold, I am with you always. I have the ESV probably says the word always there. It's a fine translation. But the emphasis here is actually more on, I will be with you all the days. It's like every single day. Jesus is saying, not just this generic statement of, hey, I'm always going to be with you. He's saying, listen, Every single day when you get up, when you engage in this mission that I have given you, when you are when you are meeting people who are unbelievers, when you are discipling believers, when you are training, when you're doing this every single day of your life, there is grace for each day. And my presence is going to be with you for the whole of every single day. It's not just a promise for general companionship if you need it. It's a promise for consistent presence every moment of every day as you engage this task. And as we engage this task, look what he says at the end of verse 20. I'm with you every day, all the days, to the end of the age. We engage this task with an eye toward the completion of, of the task with a goal that anticipates and hopes in the return of Christ and longs for the day when the gospel has gone to every nation and we have been able to be a part of seeing that happen. We look toward the future with hope. I remember when I was in high school, my, my, like the last exam that I took in my little high school, a couple of the guys in my class were were screaming down the hallway. They were so excited that they were finished. They were running down the hallway. And one of our one of our teachers was, uh, he, he fought in Vietnam and he was a major, had a couple of purple hearts and he stepped out of the hallway and he said, boys, come with me. <laughs> and he took those two guys who were making a lot of noise in the hallway and he took them out back of our little Christian school. And there was a pile of concrete here. And he said, I want you to, I want you to pick up that pile of concrete And then I want you to move it over here to the other side of the parking lot. And then when they did that, he said, now I want you to move it back again. (laughs) 
And it was just this repetitive over and over thing that they were supposed to do with no purpose and no goal to it. And that is not at all what our mission is like. We're not just spinning our wheels. We're not just carrying something back and forth, taking the gospel here and there with no end in sight. Our mission is to the end of the age, and we engage this task. We hit it hard while we're here. We go at it with everything we have, knowing that Christ is returning and that there is coming an end to the age. And this mission and this task is assured to be accomplished. It's a purposeful task to the end of the age. So that's the mission that we've been called to, that you and I have been called to, not just pastors, not just elders, but the church body has been called to this task. So I want to spend just a couple of minutes here at the end thinking through specifically what this task means for our lives individually and then for our church body. If discipleship is a lifelong, remember the definitions of discipleship we gave, If discipleship is a lifelong process, it's a process. You're growing in it. You're participating in the process. And that process must invade every area of your life. It is all-consuming. To be a follower of Christ is not just something you do on the side. It's all-consuming. You are to be molded to be like Jesus Christ. If that is what discipleship is then let me ask you this morning, what areas in your life still need to be shaped by the reality that you are a disciple, that you are following that dusty road, walking that dusty road, following your Savior and in his presence? In other words, what I'm asking is, are you claiming to follow Christ? And then are there specific areas in your life where you're ignoring some of his teaching? where I just don't really want to go there. You know, I don't want to deal with this struggle that I'm having or with this area. What personal idols are you holding on to and coddling rather than smashing because you are a follower of Jesus Christ? That's individually. Now, if making disciples, if this really is the mission of every believer, and I... I think that's very clear. That's what Christ is telling us here. This is the mission of every single believer. Then let me ask you, how are you personally involved in this process, in this mission? How are you involved in this? And there's a number of ways to be involved in this. Are you seeking to connect, to go and connect with those who are outside of the church body and bring them to hear the gospel, share the gospel with them? That's certainly one way to be involved in this process. But let me ask you this. When we're talking about in the church body, are you involved in the process of discipleship in relationship with another believer? Are you meeting with someone else, discipling them, teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded? Older folks, more seasoned saints, Are you helping a young believer specifically to follow Christ more faithfully? Are you spending time with someone? When was the last time you had a conversation with someone where both of you mutually encouraged one another to be more faithful to the commands of Christ, to more consistently understand and apply the gospel to your life? 
young people? Are you identifying an older believer who you can follow? I mean, Paul told the church, follow me as I follow Christ. Young people, who are you pursuing that is going hard after Christ that you can come behind and say, teach me what it means to be a follower of Christ in my work, in my play, in my relationships, in my church life. That's the work of the Great Commission. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Making disciples is people work. It's helping one another to be more and more like Christ. Are you loving, giving, sharing, confronting, and edifying people within the body of Christ? That's great commission work. That's fulfillment of this passage, making disciples. And then finally, our church as a whole. I know I'm new here, right? So getting my feet under me, getting the lay of the land. But are we committed to seeing the gospel go down the street to our community as well as around the world? And it seems to me the answer is yes, (laughs) do that. But let's excel still more in this. Let's take up this task afresh and say, this is what we're about. We make disciples here and around the world. We share the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. We want to see people come to Christ, and then we want to disciple them and help them and teach them all things that Christ has commanded. Now, if you're thinking about locally, let me just put one word of encouragement out for an opportunity to do this sort of thing. This next Saturday, we have hotcakes and hunting eggs opportunity here at the church, okay? Now, This is an opportunity for great commission work to happen, right? You can invite people in your neighborhood to come to this. And then when you get here, it's a great opportunity for them to come to the church property and more importantly, to meet people who are already followers of Christ. And then when you come to this next Saturday, don't just stand and talk to people who you already know from WBC. Instead, seek out one Visitor, one new person who you don't know, who normally doesn't come to church here, and just enter their world, engage them, talk to them, ask them a few questions, and get to know them. That can be the beginning of making a disciple that Jesus calls us to here. So let me encourage you with that this next Saturday. Even if you don't invite a family with young children, that's fine. Come and engage people who are here. That would be a great opportunity there. The last thing I want to say here as we finish up is if you look back at this passage, verses 18 to 20, one of the things that struck me about this is how comprehensive the language is here. Look at this. Verse 18, Jesus says, all authority, all sovereignty is his. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It is a massive task that we've been given. And then verse 20, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And at the end of verse 20, but I am with you always. All the days, every single day, I will be with you. My presence will be with you. We have Christ's care, his love, his affection, and his support as we engage this task. So let's continue to do this Together, And I look forward to that opportunity with you. So good to be. Let's pray.
Father, we're so thankful for this morning. We're thankful for your word. I pray that you would pierce our hearts with it. Help us to make application to our own lives. Teach us, train us, help us to enter this discipleship process in a greater way this coming week. And above all that, Lord, we are so thankful for your presence. We're thankful that we don't walk through this world without you, trying to find our way in a dark maze. But we have the light of the world who is with us every moment of every day. Help us to enjoy that, to rejoice in that. And because we're motivated by your presence, give us the energy to engage this process of discipleship more and more. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.